One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millet calls himself a libertarian. He not only wants to dollarize the economy, but also shut down the central bank, which he blames for the skyrocketing inflation in the country. He also questions Argentina's free public healthcare and education systems. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, it's an interesting approach, isn't it? A country with massive debt, a huge rich poor gap, and inflation that is getting out of control. And he wants to ditch the central bank and stop helping the poor. It seems like Argentina is heading for even greater disaster and unrest. But Aver Millet has won the vote. He is the president-elect. So will he do what he says and ditch the central bank whilst dollarizing the economy? Does either approach make sense? Well, it's time perhaps to look at what is it exactly that central banks do for us this week on the Debunking Economics podcast with me and Steve Keen. Thanks for tuning in. So Argentina has big problems. Inflation's been running at 140%. It could be 180% soon. The economy is in recession. But what's new there? It's been in recession for at least a third of the last 70 years or so. And part of that comes from a lack of credit. Well, you know, why would that be? Well, interest rates are close to 100%. So it would be, wouldn't it? That might be something to do with it. And the value of the peso has halved in the last year. So what is President-elect Ave Malay uh, are going to do about it. Well, he reckons dollarization is part of the answer. Give up the peso and use the US currency, use the US dollar as its currency and get rid of the central bank. Do you need one, really? Perhaps you don't if you don't have a local currency. So, Steve, what could possibly go wrong with all of this? Other countries have abandoned their currency normally when they're experiencing hyperinflation. But Argentina, I mean, this is almost 50 million people. That's quite a big step, isn't it? Although I think most people are already using the US dollar. So maybe it's not a big step because of this falling value of the peso. But it's not the only option. I mean, it's it's often done, isn't it? You know, if our currencies just turn to rubbish, let's resort to the, to the US dollar. But it's not the only option, is it? Oh, I'm no expert on this area. I've got to say straight away, I've never been involved in currency controls and so on and cutting out hyperinflation. But you, you, what what you have going on normally behind this is a struggle over the distribution of income. And that turns up in you know wage demands followed by price rises, followed by wage demands and so on. And you get an unbreaking spiral, which occurs in the domestic currency. And then as you say, people start in that situation, start to want what they regard as a hard currency. And that's compared to 180% rate of inflation the American currency is a hard currency, and you and and therefore you get you know two sets of prices: domestic currency and 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 the hard currency price. And often the hard currency price is cheaper. You know, you do the conversions, you actually come out ahead. Uh, so as you say, it's it's almost like a. It, it, it's sort of a fait accompli to go towards when you when you hit an inflation rate in your domestic currency of 180. Uh, percent It's almost a fait accompli to go to the American currency as an alternative, which I think Ecuador did the same thing in similar circumstances, just to to break an inflationary spiral. It didn't work out that well for Ecuador, though, did it? Really? I mean, I, I don't know. Is it necessary? I might have solved the problem in the short term, but you know, they've defaulted uh, several times 
since then, and I'm not sure that they're you know in in such a good place either. No, the the, the pro- yeah the problem is just to finish on that theme. Uh, you suddenly have a currency which you can't create domestically, and therefore you if you run a balance of trade deficit, you start running out of the American dollars. So you've got to borrow American dollars, and you owe a debt in American dollars, which means you have to export more than you import to pay it. And one way to do that is to suppress the economy. So you get ended up in a, a deflationary spiral coming out of it, unless you manage to get a balanced uh, a balance. Well, you've somehow got to have at least a balance of trade that's pretty close to zero or a surplus. Otherwise, you run out of your currency, and then you know it's a spiral towards collapse. Yeah, if you're rich in natural resources, then then maybe you could do it. But then you begin to question, you know, what? How did you get into that state in the first place? If you can export more than you can, than you need to to import. But I mean, are there other things that you theoretically could do? Uh, I mean, you could. I mean, it's been done before, where you basically just create another currency, don't you? You say, well, okay, we're not the peso anymore. With the peso mark two, uh, we are only going to print a certain amount of it, so it's a limited resource. Uh, so you know it it it, it should become deflationary uh, and and go down that road and, and that has been done elsewhere successfully as well again i'm no expert on currency stabilization but that is another route to go down you suddenly declare a new currency a conversion into the old currency and and you you break the spiral that way but the fundamental cause of the spiral is the um is, is the is the struggle over the distribution of income and Argentina is a classic instance there. I've got to look up the author's name. I read, read a marvelous article comparing Argentina to Europe, to the to North America. Uh, uh, Gabriel La Palma, like it's Gabriel La Palma from a tribute, a festive book for Jeff, the greatest Australian non-orthodox economist Jeff Harcourt, a three-volume fesh shrift. And the Palmer's article is about the best one and one of the best in the whole series. And what he argued was that the Argentinian ruling class are trying to keep up with the American ruling class. So their point of reference is not, you know, their own domestic elites. It's we want to be as rich as America. So if you look at the level of consumption in the American economy, when La Palma wrote, it was roughly 70% for workers and 30% for capitalists. He said in Argentina, it's 65% for capitalists and 35% for workers. So you've got an enormous income disparity. And that also is is huge pressure from the poor to get some of the share. And then what happens is you get the price spiral coming in response to wage demands and so on. And uh, I remember talking to a member of the Argentinian embassy in Australia back in the... uh, late uh, mid to late 90s i think it was and uh, we're talking about the foreign debt that argentina had at the time which is roughly 40 billion american dollars and he said look we know that there's roughly 40 billion american dollars in the overseas bank accounts of the argentinian elite yeah so huge you're not going to get rid of that by changing across the american dollar you're still going to have those same class conflicts turning yeah and, and and if you're going down that road you've almost got to you know go for the the whole free market approach haven't you which is very much uh, where Arve malay's head is at so he is you know talking about reducing because uh, they've got massive government debt as well so his way around resolving that problem is uh, well we'll just sell off a third of what we own basically uh, so that we don't have that government debt uh, and I guess they'll sell it off in in US dollars, so that might help with their balance of payments for for a short while. Uh, and then he thinks that will mean that you know uh, Argentina will be a better bet. People will start buying Argentinian bonds. 
So bond yields will come down. It'll become a good place to to invest. Uh, it'll it'll cost less to borrow. Uh, hallelujah, problem solved. Um, it's not going to work though, is it? Because of all those problems that you know you can have that initial control, but you've got no control over your economy beyond that because you are reliant on the uh, the, the US dollar. And of course, you you don't have a central bank because the central bank will have no control if you're using a foreign currency. Well, I mean, you still got you can you need a central bank for clearance between private banks. And that's one reason that I, I, you know, I tend to resile a bit from the idea of let's abolish the central bank, because that's saying let's abolish the pay, the, uh, the payment and settlement account system, and, and that, uh, you know, that that will the, the banks themselves will create some sort of alternative way of doing that, but uh, it, that just implies a bit of monetary chaos. And what are you trying to get away from? Monetary chaos. But uh, like a fundamental point is that you have uh, the central banks. Uh, around the world to, fought to get themselves made independent of the government, uh, largely because they said, we're the experts, we should know how to mon- manage the, you know, set the rate of interest to control the rate of inflation, the rate of economic growth. And the reality is they're not the experts on the economy, they're experts on neoclassical economics, uh, which is mythical and can lead to uh, you know disasters in other countries where the focus is on the rate of inflation reducing that by means that don't work uh, while ignoring the level of unemployment, which leads to some of the social conflict that you you have. So I can understand wanting to get rid of the control layer, uh, the, you know, the, but you still need the, the functional system to enable settlements between uh, numerous uh, private banks. Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, the New Zealand's uh, central bank, the RBNZ, actually had supposedly had a dual mandate of looking after uh, you know stability in the economy, in other words, controlling inflation whilst also keeping a handle on unemployment. Uh, but I noticed that, that um, that's been cast aside, I think, from next year. They're abandoning that employment focus. But actually, um, I mean, it's not a bad thing for them to have. If, you, if, you, if you're going to give them a mandate, um, balancing those two, because obviously they are contrary forces, aren't they? But you, at the same time, the question is, what can the central bank do to control the rate of unemployment? And uh, and, and this is, a, again, you get caught in you know, neoclassical um, magical thinking that you can control the economy, uh, both inflation and unemployment, by using interest rate controls. Interest rates. Uh, economists yeah. will say... Well, they, I mean, their argument, just, I mean, I'll allow you to expand on that, but their argument would be, well, if we lower interest rates, then that's going to create more investment opportunity, that's going to create more jobs, that's going to lower employment, that would be, uh, unemployment. That would be their, their answer to that. Yeah, I mean, yeah but what, they, what they'll also say is you can't control two targets with two, two targets with one instrument. So, you know, if you say we want to include it, you know, if, if you've got both inflation and unemployment as a target, then don't tell us we've got the two, the two targets with one bullet, uh, which is partly the response they'll make. And I will, and I'll, I'll come to their defence moderately on that front because when you look at the government through the lens of double entry bookkeeping, I'm not going to call it modern monetary theory because that'll that'll provoke people from on both sides. When you look at it in double entry bookkeeping terms, you find that the organ of the government that controls government money creation and and also the government's contribution to aggregate demand, it's the treasury. The treasury is what, uh, by running a deficit, the deficit creates money and creates reserves and all the mechanics of bonds occur there. But as part of that spending, the government spending creates additional demand in the economy. That even, I mean, I hear people disputing that, but that turns up in the definition of GDP. If you've, if you've been through a conventional economics course, you, you use Y for letter Y for GDP. You say, well, I'm equal to C plus I, which is consumption plus investment, 
plus X minus M, which exports minus imports, plus G minus T, government spending minus taxation. So you already acknowledge that the government running a deficit creates part of aggregate demand and aggregate income. Um, so that's the Treasury's responsibility. So they should be working together. Uh, you know, in a sense, you have the control for aggregate demand of the Treasury's hands and the control for inflation, so-called, with the interest rate in, this, in the central bank's command. That's why they want to you know, get rid of that responsibility. The trouble is, at the same time, neoclassical economists argue the government shouldn't run a deficit. And then you get caught, hang on a second, you're leaving you know, aggregate demand unaffected as if the market's going to reach equilibrium. Uh, and then you've got the interest rate. And what you end up being, the interest rate does have an impact on on both elements because they, they rather than using it to fine-tune the economy, they batter around the economy because you put the interest rate to a point at which nobody wants to borrow, investment collapses, and then you get unemployment rises as a result, and that maybe takes the wings out of in, inflation. And that's pretty much what you were saying with what, what rates of interest of 100% at mm. the moment. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, and 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 that would be the politics of all of this, wouldn't it? Because Arve Malay, like everybody, of course, is blaming central banks for uh, interest rates being so high. Well, because they're being set by by this by the central banks. So he said, uh, central banks can be divided into four categories: the bad ones, like the Federal Reserve; the very bad ones, like the ones in Latin America; the horribly bad ones. He doesn't say who they are, and then the Central Bank of Argentina. Uh, so this is so this is why he wants to get rid of it. But I think it's all because it's a it's a easy political win, isn't it? To say, hey, look, you know, we've got we're paying this this horrendous level of uh, of interest, and that's stopping investment and and spending. I mean, I was trying to find just before we came on a quote which I saw and I should have saved it, where he was basically saying, interest rates, the natural rate of interest should be zero. I'm trying, I can't find that quote, but I'm sure I read it from, from him. So, yeah, from him. Okay, because that, that's the same attitude that a lot of monetary theory people have. The natural rate should be zero. Mm. So that's rather remarkable that uh, he's arguing arguing that line because a, a lot of what I read from him sounds very Austrian and saying the Austrian saying there's a natural Austrian. rate of unemployment, yeah. which is equilibrium in the money market, which is thinking in terms of loanable funds and. Uh, it's rather intriguing to have them saying something which a modern monetary theory person would, say. would also yeah. say. Well, look, let's look at what they do. When we come back after the break, what they do, uh, and just generally the role of central banks, because, I mean, it is a point. If they don't have one, and he's got, you know, his friend Emiliano Campo is a, an economist. I mean, he's not. There's, there's a lot of uh, people obviously opposed to him, whether he can actually push ahead with all of this. So uh, Santiago Bulat, who's a Argentine economist. He should be a Chilean economist with the name Santiago. I love these with economists that have a named after places. They're a bit like Wombles in that respect, aren't they? But he's <laughs> he's he's one who said, you know, look at Ecuador. They dollarized. They're in a very critical situation. They now depend on the United States monetary policies. They have defaulted twice in the last 20 years. So it's not any golden bullet, is it? Uh, not to- at all. To, to go down the road of the US dollar. But let's look at what the, you know, in detail, what the functions are of central banks, places that don't have them. And, uh, you know, some of it obviously could be done by the Treasury. Some of it perhaps could be done by the banking sector on its own without necessarily being owned by the government. So we'll try and pull all that apart in just a second when we come back. It's the Debunking Economics podcast. Me and Steve Keen. Stay with us. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Countries without central banks, but they are all pretty small and they all rely on other currencies. So Monaco, no surprise, uses the euro. Uh, but, you know, like everyone who's using the euro, it's all they've all outsourced their monetary policy to the European Central Bank. We could talk for hours about whether that's a good idea. No, is the short abbreviated answer to that. Uh, Micronesia, this is interesting, uses the US dollar, which is ironic given that it was actually where, you know, the early foundations of money on the island of Yap, those large stone coins. Uh, now they've got a, the, the Federal Development Bank, which is government-owned, which is sort of like a full-service bank. That's another way. You don't have a central bank. You just have one That's bank. Right. Yeah. And it does it all. Looks after money, gives loans, presumably determines the interest rate. They've got it, you know, uh, and if you've got a small country, maybe that is the way to do it. It's feasible. I mean, if, 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 uh, like if, if the, the fundamental thing in it is a settlement system. And my father, actually, uh, Al Keane, used to be the Commonwealth Bank representative on the settlements uh, uh, committee, I think it was called. Um, and every every day or virtually every week, you'd get together and you'd have to cross-reference the checks. So if you had a somebody paying a check from the Commonwealth Bank to West to the Wales and somebody else paying Wales back to the Commonwealth Bank, they'd net out the amount of transfer that's necessary for the reserves between the two. And so rather than enormous amounts of money schlossing between the banks, there was a small amount of money with the netting netting involved. So, uh, And that was set up by the... By the um, Commonwealth Bank, which at the time was also the reserve, was also the Central Bank of Australia, and then they separated the functions. Uh, but so th- this is the sort of thing which can actually be done by the private banks themselves. But you have to have it uh, with more than one bank. In a place like Micronesia, as you see, it's too small. You're not going to have a, if you have a central bank, a private bank, it'll be a monopoly anyway. Uh, you're better off to have the monopoly being a state monopoly. And then it does everything. So individuals have a bank account which is held at the central bank, and there's no need for settlements. Yeah, so I can't help it. You wouldn't get if a customer, you wouldn't be getting very good value if there's just one bank, mind you. Although Nauru, uh, you know, we're talking about a very small population, four hundred thousand people. It's expected to grow, by the way, by fifty percent in the next ten years as the uh, as the islands gradually disappear due to climate change. Uh, the population is supposedly growing. But they've only got one bank. It's the Bendigo Bank, <laughs> and they use the Australian dollar. So they are, presumably the interest rate there, which I can't find anywhere, is the same as Australia's. So they are just sort of like an Australian outpost in terms of uh, their finance system. So, you know, 
That's another way. Incidentally, the Bendigo Bank ends their agreement next year. So Nauru actually won't have a bank at all. Not only no central bank, they won't have a bank. So there's uh, there's an interesting financial crisis looming there. But what about the the role of central banks then? So that clearing function that you talked about, I mean, it was done before central banks came along or before central banks were uh, taken in by governments. And obviously, that a lot of it still happens outside the central bank. I mean, it doesn't all, that clearing function isn't all done through the uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia, for example, if we're talking Australia. I mean, banks do sort out clearance amongst themselves, so whatever, you know, at a bank rate that might be better than going through the, the central bank. Well, they'll do exchanges of reserves with each other. I mean, again, I, I would like to know, there's not enough time to learn everything you need to know about economics. So there are some elements where I'm probably going to make a, make a mistake in saying what the situation is. But I think most banks, the, the, the central bank gives you an easy way to do it because you've both got accounts. In, you know, the, the, in a country like Australia where there's about what, well, there are four major banks and a small number of, of additional minor banks like Bendigo, those uh, Non-Australians don't know Bendigo. It's a it's a regional town in Victoria of New South of, of Australia. So um, the fact that it's got an outpost in Nauru is 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 rather comical. Um, but <laughs> but it's you, closing you, you down. Have, they, they they're focusing on mm-hmm. Australia. They say. But anyway, yeah. yeah. But what you've got is they, they they all have accounts at the Reserve Bank of Australia. Therefore, the settlements all all transfers of money pass through their accounts at the central bank, and then the netting out is effectively done by the central bank itself. And it, with these days, it'll be pretty much automatic because so many transactions are electronic. Uh, whereas in the days that my father was on that committee, it was a uh, physical transfers of checks, and you'd actually have uh, the checks took a week to settle because it literally had to go through this particular body so that it would all be netted out before the transfers were then recorded in the accounting systems of each of the banks. Uh, so now when you have electronic systems and you all have accounts at the central bank, that is a very, very fast and smooth function. And and that's you know, one element of having a central bank I would not like to do without by any means. But I know if you did do it, then the banks would establish their own clearinghouse and they'd do it right. through that. And that money that's cleared, this is the idea of how much you've got to have in reserve, isn't it? So if, you've, if you are, you know, net uh, $100 million, uh then that's different to somebody else who's down by a hundred million. If you, if you, if basically you've got to transfer a hundred million from your bank to the Commonwealth Bank because a whole load of your customers are buying stuff from Commonwealth Bank customers, then to enable that transition, you've got to have that hundred million sitting in your reserves to to, mal- ma- to manage that balance. Is that the idea of the reserve? Or you, or you'll have to sell bonds at various times. I mean, there are there are elements to this which. Uh, uh, the banks themselves like to have some reserves. It used to be compulsory to have reserves. Back in the days, we had required reserve ratios, and virtually every country in the world has abolished them. Uh, America abolished was one of the last ones to abolish that. They, they abolished it during the COVID crisis. Um, but uh, sorry, Australian Central Bank, I think, has abolished reserve required reserve ratios back in the early 2000s. Uh, because there was the theory at once which economy, neoclassical economists swallowed. It was produced by Milton Friedman, and therefore it was wrong. But that theory was that banks lend out reserves, and 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 therefore they thought, well, they have to have reserves on hand to make loans, which is completely wrong. Um, but the, 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 the government was required them to have a certain amount of reserves. And then if there was a transfer of money from one bank to another bank, the reserves would go with it. So if, if, you, were, if you bank with Barclays and I bank with uh, Lloyd's and, uh, you know, 
I sent you 100,000, which is not going to happen, but let's be mythical here, send you 100,000. Then to make that transfer, 100,000 of reserves at Lloyd's have to go down and 100,000 of reserves at Barclays have to go up. Now, that could then mean that Barclays actually has more reserves than it needs and Lloyd's has less. So what the banks then do is say, well, I'll lend it back to you. So then there's a transfer of reserves from from Barclays back to Lloyd's again, but at an interest rate, and it's recorded as a loan between the two institutions, and that loan will be cheaper than the uh, than Lloyd's having to go to the uh, Bank of England and say we want to borrow some reserves. To borrow the reserves, they then have to hand over uh, bonds as, as security, in a sense. Or uh, so there's a, a well, it can be an overnight loan, or there can be what they call repo agreements, and that then uh, gives the the bank converts effectively bonds back into reserves and gets back to the stage where it has the reserves it's needs. So all this stuff is going on in the background um, in any banking system with a central bank. And that is why I get a bit scared about the suggestion that let's abolish it. Um, get rid of the neoclassical economists who run the damn thing for sure, um, but you know, get rid of people who know what, how these, all these transfers occur. You could have monetary chaos coming out of that. Yeah, exactly. Well, perhaps he, perhaps he is saying, well, you know, that'll still exist and it'll be some some bank will do that. But it, I think, you know, it's, 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 it's headline stuff, isn't he? Saying let's abolish the central bank because they've because uh, monetary policy the way they've been operating it with interest rates of 100 percent isn't going to work and it, hey we're going to take the dollar anyway but that that function i mean that that the, these mechanical functions that work in the background i mean they've they have to be there don't they for 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 every country now they might be done um by commercial banks but i mean what i think what we're saying is yes but there's got to be a um, a stopgap measure as well somebody's got to be there for when banks can't agree amongst themselves, but there's also got to be a rate at which you know what to what to how do they agree the you know the, the, how much they're going to lend to each other at what rates? But uh, another, you almost need the government. I mean, you need the government there to say, well, okay, this is the rate that we're that we're setting. If you use us, this is what you're going to pay. So that that sets a a benchmark. So that's where interest rates become important, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, the other thing which which matters here, if you say you're going to dollarize your economy and get rid of the peso then you've already got people who currently got peso bank accounts and you've got to then give them a conversion rate from the peso account to a, an account which is a US dollar account. And um, then the, you know, you've got an exchange rate, which I'm sure is incredibly volatile at the moment. You probably have to offer somebody uh, to make to, to avoid you know chaos. You may be offering a slightly higher rate for the conversion. And then suddenly you've got a demand for American dollars, which you have to borrow. So, but it sounds like that, it's happening anyway. It sounds like everyone's already using US dollars. I suspect there's not much peso left in circulation, so maybe that's less of an issue. I wonder. I mean, that, that'd be something you'd need to look at the, the very closely at the Argentinian data. Um, if if people, what that would imply is that bank accounts are no longer being used for transactions, uh, or people have, uh, you know, the, the usual story when you say you're going to dollarize, you actually have. A, dollar notes being imported. So at one stage, way back in uh, the early 2000s, I had a, a number of people who were fans of my work in the in the, in the Ecuadorian government. Uh, and they uh, I never, there's all these promises of funding for Minsky that never eventuated. Um, but I'd come and give talks in Ecuador on occasion. So I met various government ministers and they said that there was pretty much a, a 747 flying in from America virtually every two or three days full of American dollar notes. So what you do is you go from a, 
electronic currency system to a paper currency system again. And, uh, you know, as much as we complain about electronic money, uh, it's certainly easier than handing pieces of paper around all the time. So, um, yeah, uh, but I would be intrigued to see whether they actually had bank accounts, which are denominated in American dollars as well. Yeah, not sure. But just getting back to let's let's focus on, uh, you know, just the role of central banks generally, just so we have a, a clear understanding of it. Because other than, uh, you know, this idea of controlling inflation uh, and setting interest rates supposedly to, to do that, we've already hi- highlighted, you know, one of the big jobs is what your dad was doing all those years ago. So when your dad was there in that room, I've just got this picture of everyone sitting there with their hand-cranked calculators just going through millions of checks and working out what the balance is. If one of the banks said, uh, we said, okay, well, it looks like you owe us all collectively um, $100 million, and the guy there is saying, well, that's a bit of a problem because we've only got $50 million on the side here, what would happen in that situation? Is that when they'd go and say, well, you're going to have to borrow from us? Yeah, uh, but like I did, it actually raised an interesting anecdote for me because uh, my father was a, a rather taciturn man. You could sit in the room for dad for three hours and not exchange a single word. So I can't say that I learned a lot about the banking from him, but certainly I picked up a, a fair amount in talking with him. But give an idea of what it would meant when you were working back in this stasis is pre, pre-computer, pre-calculator, uh, slide rules existed, okay? Uh, so I, I was in, involved in school debating, and you had three people in each team, and you had Mark, we had three... T- Marks were allocated by three words. There was what they call manner, matter, and method. And there were 20, 40, and 40 marks for each of those maximums you could get. And then there were 10 work points for teamwork. I think, and in fact, there was like teamwork for each of three people in a team. So there's a ridiculous number of a number of uh, numbers. And then one of the adjudicators read out what she said was the score for a particular debate. And Dad said, "I don't think that's right." And he then asked the adjudicator to give him the uh, the sheet of paper. So you had three six columns, which was each of the uh, six speakers on the on the two teams. Three levels for um, manner, matter, method. So there's another grid. So it's six by three. So you've got eighteen numbers there, and then additional ones for teamwork for each person plus the overall teamwork. And he just looked at it and he went up and down the columns. Like literally running his finger, boom, 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 and within, and he then corrected all the numbers. Took him about ten seconds, and he, I, I was just in awe. So my father's arithmetic abilities were off the scale, and anybody working who got that position was somebody who had incredible arithmetic skills. So nobody disagreed with anybody else because they're all, um, you know, sort of savants, not idiot savants, but savants in mm. handling numerical calculations. And he didn't say much. So he didn't use his lifetime word allowance, so you've inherited that. So that's uh, so you can talk twice as much. You've inherited the words he didn't use, uh, which is useful for all of us, of course, filling in all those <laughs> words that his father never said. So in that situation, though, so there's a, a bank that says, okay, we haven't got enough. That's where That's where a bank would lend but that's that is a this is this is where this is the, when you start to get into liquidity issues isn't it and that is an, another area where central banks can step in you know we keep, we keep on hearing about you know they are the lender of last resort they provide emergency liquidity so that presumably is when banks don't have enough in reserve to try and settle 
all of their transfers with other banks. Yeah, and that's again a major role of a central bank. Uh, one of the classic characters who, who led to this was back in the, I think it was the 1870s, a Barclays, a crisis called by a Barclays Bank. Have you ever heard of, uh, I think his first name is William, William Badger. Ever heard of him? Uh, vaguely. Okay. I actually spent we were talking about pronunciations before we started recording. His name is B A G G E H O T, and I thought it was Badgett. Badgett. It's actually Badgett. But he said that this should be an institution which is willing to lend to a, a bank against good collateral to enable it to continue operating even if it gets caught in short term difficulties. And then if you shut the bank down, um, what used to happen in the past if a bank failed, its depositors lost their money. So a major role of central banks is to say, well, uh, the depositors should not lose their money. So if we have a bank which fails because it has liabilities exceeding short-term liabilities exceeding its short-term assets, um, then we transfer its depositors to another bank which gets to buy the other assets of the bank at a you know a peppercorn price. So uh, particularly in the American banking system, which at one point had thousands of banks and probably still does, um, a lot of the role of the central bank was to manage the collapse of various private banks in such a way that depositors didn't get wiped out and that the they could open their bank accounts the next next Monday because often these closures would occur on a Friday and then find that they had exactly the same amount of money in their bank, but it was a different bank. So that sort of management of the entire financial system is something else that a central bank has to do. And again, I'm rather scared about the idea of abolishing it. Yeah, well, making sure banks behave uh, is certainly a, you know, an important part of it all as well, isn't it? Which is often very different to the, the, the monetary arm, more of a, a fiscal control uh, arm yeah, of, yeah, uh, yeah. Of, of banking, managing banking regulation, basically. Then there's the whole thing about issuing currency. Uh, but central banks really don't do that, do they? I mean, that really, I mean, there's this belief in some quarters that they're controlling the money supply. But are they really in any way? No, no, they're not. I mean, the, the interesting thing is, again, we still have cash. We still have physical coins and right. and That uh, comes from the Treasury and, and not from the Central Bank normally. Well, no, in fact, and from what I've – again, I could be getting my memory wrong here. The Treasury has got the capacity to issue – Note coins, and the, in most countries, the central bank has the capacity to issue notes. So, and and that's where the seniorage turns up. So, if you have a, a country which you know the, the central bank decides to produce a billion dollars worth of of notes of its of its currency, uh, then the cost of printing those billion dollars uh, of, of notes is going to be about a million dollars, and the 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 notes are then registered on the central bank as an asset. Uh, out of the they've created a, a, a trillion that is then lent out through the financial system. So when people want money out of ATMs, the these uh, private banks have to transfer funds from their uh, electronic accounts to their physical accounts. They can then hand out the their vaults effectively. So they hand out the money through ATMs, and that then means that the notes are then a liability of the central bank, an asset of the person that holds them. But you've had the seniorage created in the meantime. So in that sense, the central bank can create money, but only when it's talking about printing individual notes. But obviously, that is becoming less significant, and it, it is only a small percentage of of the total amount of money that's that that that's in circulation and what like maybe three percent i don't know i'm just guessing but the other 97 percent, if that was the case central banks really don't have any control over no and then well they've got a small amount of control because if they um buy bonds off the non-bank financials the, the non-bank sector so if you like i i one stage bought 
long story about uh, investment decision, but I bought $200,000 worth of Queensland government bonds way, way back in the 1990s. And uh, with the belief that interest rates would fall, so I'd profit out of the, the falling uh, interest rate would mean an increasing value for the bonds. That was my one speculation ever. Um, but the when the, when the bonds are then bought back by the central bank from non-banks, that actually creates money because you have a bond. Say the bond was worth two hundred thousand when I bought it. Um, the, the the central bank then buys it back off you, and then what happens is they pay two hundred thirty thousand. There's a conversion of 200,000 of bonds into money. That's creating money. And then the additional capital gain I made was also created by the price they paid. So they do have a role there, but it's relatively minor uh, compared to the Treasury, which when the Treasury spends more than it gets back in taxation, it creates that amount of money and it creates that amount of reserves. And the relationship between central banks and government debt, tell us about that. I mean, it's, I mean most of the money that's created and we've, we've covered this off, obviously, a lot on this podcast, is either, you know, by and large, it's commercial banks giving out loans, but it's also governments uh, going into debt. Not going into debt. Well, okay. Selling bonds. Terminology. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very important terminology because people like politicians think that the government's actually borrowing money from the public when it's in fact creating money from the public by running a deficit. And then when the bonds are sold, that is converting reserves which are created by the deficit uh, in double entry bookkeeping terms. So if the government spends more on you than it takes back in taxation, the difference is, is increases your deposit account and the balancing item on the assets of the private bank is an increase in its reserves as well. And if you go back to pre-global financial crisis days, reserves earned no interest. So when, when the government said we're going to issue bonds offering you know, 3 or 4% per annum, that was an offer to convert reserves which earn zero interest into bonds that earn 3 or 4% and bonds that can also be traded. Uh, and so the central banks, the private banks happily took up that offer. It's an asset swap. So there's no, uh, but, but, the, but the important point about the, the central bank's role in government debt so long as the government's issuing money in its own currency, and of course this is not going to be Argentina's situation if they if they dollarize, as long as it's doing that, the, the central bank has an infinite capacity to buy government bonds, and there would be it's only laws that have been passed by politicians who don't understand the monetary system uh, that means that the that's not allowed. What normally happens is the the treasury spends more than it gets back in taxation, issues bonds equal to that, plus interest on outstanding bonds. Uh, those are then bought by the private banks, which are required to buy those bonds to a large degree, but also want to because of the, the gain in interest earnings. Um, and then the central bank will then involve, get involved in open money, op, open market operations, buying and selling bonds and repos and so on with the private banks to try to control the short-term interest rate that it's set. Um, but it could be quite possible for the central bank to say, I'm going to buy all the bonds. Why not? And what that would happen is they'd say to the private banks, we're going to put, you know, a trillion dollars into your reserve accounts uh, in return for a trillion dollars worth of bonds you've got. And that's absolutely nothing to stop the central bank doing that apart from laws. Uh, yeah, it's, well, it's no, no accounting reason why they can't do it. So Japan's having a pretty good go at that, aren't they? So and yeah. how, how much of this is the role of of the central banks is actually a political role then. So, I mean, this is this would be the reason uh, why, uh, you know, the uh, our man in Argentina, Aver Millet, uh, is there saying, you know, I, I want to abolish the central bank. It's because he would be seeing it as their, their decision on interest rates 
is a political decision. And it is to an extent, isn't it? Because if you look at, you know, that buying of bonds, how interest rates are, you know, can be controlled because it's basically a response to the market, isn't it? If you issue too many bonds, then you start to influence the interest rate. I mean, that's... Uh, you know, we're, we're we're seeing that around the world. We saw it during the the pandemic when the the governments in many parts of the world would say, "Okay, we need to uh, go heavily into debt now. We're going to issue a great deal of bonds." And then, surprise, surprise, sometimes the same day, the central bank announces, "Well, we're going to buy almost as many, or exactly the same number of bonds uh, off banks." So they can buy these and we're going to buy what they've got currently. So it's sort of like it, even though it wasn't a direct transfer, it was pretty close to it. Uh, and we, they got away with that because the pandemic was on. These were unusual times. No, it, it, There's no reason why that couldn't it, 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 it's, it's, In accounting terms, there's no reason why it can't be done all the time because it, 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 what you've got is, with, with, a, with a, again, it's thinking in double-entry bookkeeping terms all the time. Um, the Treasury uh, has... The Treasury creates fiat money by going into negative equity, and the negative equity the Treasury generates is exactly equal to the positive equity that it creates for the non-government sector. Uh, but the central bank itself is, is part of the, the, the fluidity of that system because it, if the you know, if the government runs a deficit, say, let's use, use a nice round number, a nice trillion dollars deficit, we're so talking American-scale economies. So a trillion dollars in deficit means that it goes a trillion dollars into negative equity. If the if it simply did that and didn't sell bonds, then its account at the central bank would go down by a trillion. You'd then have a negative account there, and that would be balanced by a trillion dollars additional money going into the reserve accounts of private banks. So the equity of the central bank is not affected. Uh, now, but that what you'd get is a negative like an overdraft account would exist for the treasury at the central bank. And most governments have passed laws saying it can't go into overdraft. So what the treasury then does is create a a trillion dollars worth of bonds and then offer those for sale to the private banks. And they've now got a trillion dollars in reserves, which have been created by the deficit. They say, okay, we'll buy that trillion dollars worth of bonds off here. And what that means is the money from from selling the bonds gets remitted back to the treasury account, which means the treasury account doesn't go into overdraft. Now that's the overall mechanics there. But equally, what could happen is the central bank could say, we're gonna buy all those bonds. So rather than selling them to the uh, private banks, even if they do sell with the private banks, the central bank then buys the lot. And then what happens is the money that the reserves that have been used by the private banks to buy the bonds come back again, end up in their reserve accounts. So it, it, it's an incredibly elastic system. And what you have is crazy laws by politicians who don't understand the monetary dynamics that constrain that elasticity. But when things like COVID hit, the deficit in America hit 30% of GDP. And it could do it almost overnight because of that very elastic monetary system. Right. So it becomes a political decision, doesn't it? Ultimately, you've got a, yeah. a, a bunch of people in grey suits unelected who are making decisions, which really probably should be decisions made by the government. So, and we've touched on this before, uh, maybe the idea of a central bank being fully independent isn't right if it's making decisions which are ultimately political. And there are consequences, obviously, as we've seen over uh, over recent years with these very high interest rates, we're seeing a uh, you know, a widening of the um, of income disparity all all over the world. There's a direct consequence of that. I mean, maybe there isn't. You know, maybe there were other approaches that could be taken, but the fact it's been left to central banks uh, with no political influence 
is perhaps a bad thing. So maybe it becomes, you know, the the role of the monetary policy becomes a political decision run by the government. All the mechanics of how that is implemented through the buying and selling and trading of bonds and the, you know, looking after the, the banking sector and making sure that there's uh, there's enough liquidity in there, all that mechanical function could be operated by sort of like an independently operated clearing bank in a way rather than a, a fully functioning central bank. Well, you know, the, the, the clearinghouse thing can certainly be done by people who are just, um, you know, administrators. Or what to do. Administrators, yeah. yeah. Um, but in terms of the interest rates and government money creation and so on, all those are things which um, politicians are amateurs about, but they're amateurs in control. And they're ha- very, they were very happy to hand over control over setting interest rates because it was always a negative to be changing the rate at which you know, the cost of money fundamentally, people doing private borrowing. So when central banks said, we're the experts handed over to us, politicians were very happy to do that because it meant they didn't have to front, uh, you know, public opprobrium. When the interest rates are put up, they could blame the, the central bank. And because this central bank is dominated by neoclassical economists who don't know what the hell they're doing, but believe they do, they do uh, then you get, you know, periods like the Volcker, inflate, Volcker increase in interest rates, uh, the increase under Powell, uh, where they believe they're fine-tuning the economy because that's how their model responds, but it's not how the actual economy responds. So, uh, you know, it, it is a classic case. We have amateurs handing over to amateurs. Uh, believing they're handing over to experts. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing we've learned about governments over the last few years, just about everywhere in the world, is none of them have got a clue anywhere about anything that they touch. Uh, so <laughs> bigger question about how democracy is working. But if you if you could trust politicians and you had smart people there, uh, then you'd be, you'd be able to say, well, okay, actually, there's, a, there's an interplay here between monetary policy and fiscal policy. Maybe we could keep interest rates lower, for example, by doing more... On a, on a fiscal approach, you know, and there are ways that you could do that. Like, for example, if you really believe people have got too much money, uh, then you could try and get them to delay spending it by, for example, issuing bonds that are short-term bonds directly to the public that have got to return or getting people to put more money into their super and allowing them to pull it out quicker. You've got a problem, mate. You've been talking too much to me. <laughs> That's exactly what I would have recommended. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's been quite feasible to control the amount of money that way. Um, so it, it is something which is ultimately a political decision about how much uh, of your economy's productive capacity you want to be uh, activated by the, the monetary system and what we have is in this is why modern monetary theory people are you know, pulling their proverbial hair out over it because you get people making decisions about it based on bad theory and then you have people in central banks changing interest rates based on bad theory so it's no wonder we get a stuffed up system but then you get somebody getting into politics who's getting into politics on the basis of another bad theory so uh, you know the mess continues well, this idea of you know maybe a better way if we believe that there was too much cash that people accumulated during the pandemic some of it because you know they had a lot of money coming in from 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 governments or they were still getting paid but they weren't paying on transport they couldn't go shopping and all that sort of stuff so they had more money sitting in their in their accounts at the end of the day and that's why we've seen this demand and that's created inflation because you know the demand people are demanding stuff that's in short supply so naturally prices go up 
you know, I've been talking to people in, you know, what you'd consider neoclassic uh, domains like banks. As you know, I work with one quite a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've had people there saying, well, yeah, no, what should have happened is exactly, you know, what we'd, we, we just touched on. They should There should have been an incentive for people in Australia, and it would apply everywhere, to put more into their super short term and perhaps allow them to take it out again in five years' time, even if they're, you know, in other words, delay that delay that spending. Yeah. And yeah, one way or the other, same, same result, isn't it? Either way, it seems like an obvious solution. But the way we're structured, there's no one incentivized to make that call because the central bank can't make that call. And the government is too either doesn't have the intelligence to think it through or they are just saying, well, actually, it's not our problem. It's the role of the central bank, and they should be independent because they're the one that's trying to fix inflation. Mm-hmm. The way it's structured at the moment, there's no way for not even imaginative, common-sense solutions like that to come to the fore. Yeah, and it, it, it's, again, engineers would be horrified if they could see how badly managed the monetary system is by people who've got a theory about the monetary system, which is wrong, and end up being becomes governors of central banks and politicians and treasurers. And it is, it, it's, you know, we're creating a large amount of our problems for ourselves. So I have a certain sympathy, uh, you know, for the Argentinian, I'm not going to pronounce his name, Argentinian Are president they central we've, banks. We've spent a, there you go. Uh, yeah. Sorry, Aver Millet, sorry, I should say. Aver Millet. It sounds like Ava. Uh, here we go. We're going to get be accused of being a racist here, but Ave Marie. Is what it sounds like. Oh, they are bringing religion into it again. Because you couldn't call the Hail Mary pass, so <laughs> that makes a certain amount of sense. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I look, it's not going to work, is it? All of it. I mean, he's uh, this idea uh, that, first of all, dollarization, but then selling like a third of the government's assets uh, to try and cut their debt and then believe that the result of all of that is that. Uh, you know, they the people are going to reinvest in the country because they see it as being a safe territory for investment. I mean, that's a that's a big call, and I think going to be wrong. And I think again, it comes back to you not addressing the core issue, which is the income disparities in the country and conflicts over the distribution of income. By the way, I'll just before we finish the show, I want to recommend Anne Pettifor's Substack space on this for a recent post she put up on this topic, uh, very well argued. And she comes up with some sympathy for uh, Ave Maria as well over this whole thing, given the, I mean, they- the similar attitude. She, so I'm going to call it Ave Maria. I've had a, I've had a hard week. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it, there are some arguments, in, even from progressive people like myself and Anne, uh, that say it's no wonder he's got the reaction he's, he's having to central banks. Whether it'll work out, I don't think Tom's going to tell us a very pleasant story on that front. No, well, that's the history of Argentina, isn't it, for sure. All right. Very good, Steve. Uh, catch you again next week. Okay, mate. Bye. The Debunking Economics Podcast. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.